Well, I'm Bishop Jeff Clements of the Northern Illinois Synod. I want to welcome you to another in our continuing series of conversations that I'm having with uh, a variety of people on a variety of topics. With us today is Pastor Kendall Koenig. He is the Senior Pastor of Light of Christ Lutheran Church in Algonquin, and we are going to uh, talk a bit about baptism, vocation, and discipleship in daily life. As we begin today, I want to remind you that we are not wearing masks because we're both fully vaccinated and feeling pretty comfortable about being in each other's presence. So thank you, Kendall, for being here today. I deeply appreciate your willingness to have this conversation. Let me just say also, um, Kendall, you've spent your entire career here in northern Illinois. Uh, you started out at Zion in Rodford, where your picture is still on the wall. You look a little bit younger. But uh, a lot younger. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, you were mission, uh, mission developer in uh, Frankfurt. And then you have been at Light of Christ for an incredible run since 2001, is it? That's just amazing. And Light of Christ uh, has the distinction of having the newest building in the Synod, because you have just uh, moved into a new facility. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. Just can't wait to be there. We'll look forward to having you there when it works. Good. Great. So, so let's talk about baptism. You know, um, it's kind of the beginning of our life together in a relationship with God. It comes at different times for different people. For me, it's been a lifelong relationship that began when I was just a, a baby, and I have grown into... Uh, a relationship uh, with our Savior that has been a tremendous blessing to me. Hopefully, it's been a blessing to some other people as well. And uh, to be honest, I'm still growing. I'm Mm -hmm. still growing in some kind of maturity and faith. So let's talk about baptism. Hopefully, we all are. I hope so. (laughs) Yeah. um, Yeah, when, you know, baptism is, it's the beginning of that journey. And it is as, you know, Luther said from the beginning in Scripture, it's, it's word and the water coming together and God's promises uh, through, through Christ's word that, that come to us. You know, I think the challenge sometimes is, is because we're in a denomination where the practice is infant baptism and, and that happens, that for a lot of people it feels like something that happened to them so long ago, the relevancy sometimes feels lost. And so... I think it is something we need to come back to, but for me, I found that um, speaking of baptism and reminding people of what baptism is is important, but even more, as you said, it's really talking about that relationship um, that it it leads us into. Um, one of the examples that I use when I'm teaching confirmation, I use the um, analogy, and I don't know if I stole it from somewhere or I came up with it, but as baptism is like uh, a present, uh, a gift that God gives to us, his promises given to us, the, the truth of who we are in um, because we've been created by God, the truth of, of Jesus' grace for our lives and our calling from the Holy Spirit, but that's given to us like a present in baptism but it's a wrapped present. And what I often talk of is confirmation is about unwrapping that gift. And because, I mean, as Luther talked about it, he said it's baptism contains all the promises of God, but if we don't receive it by faith, if we don't unpack it for our own lives, then it's almost, I say, it's like a Christmas gift that you've gotten that just stays wrapped up in a closet and it means nothing. And so do you have it? You have it, but you don't really have it because you haven't unwrapped it. Mm-hmm. So for me, that's what confirmation and really our life of faith is. It's about unwrapping that gift 
and living into the blessings of what that gift is. So, it's one analogy I've, yeah. I've used at times. Now, once in a while, I hear confirm- said of confirmation that we're wasting it on middle school students. <laughs> um, when I have uh, had the opportunity to baptize an adult, um, as joyful as baptizing a baby is, boy, baptizing an adult can bring me to tears because uh, it's, a, it's a different level of uh, understanding. And the same thing for confirmation. Um, I, I love teaching confirmation. I think it's an important thing to do. It's mm-hmm. an important step along the way. But um, when you talk to a new believer about what faith is all about and what faith means to me, um, boy, there's a different look in the eyes that you get. You know, that those thoughts send me in multiple directions. So let me just touch on a couple of things as you said that. We have 20-some in the confirmation class this year. The There's like five or six of them that have not been baptized because they have been invited in by a friend who is a part of the church. And so we are wrestling with that whole question of we are having more young people being baptized because their families weren't connected with church early on or that wasn't the tradition out of which they came. And mm-hmm. so doing that. So that's one that we're sort of figuring out. How do we work that in? And and, and so it, we're doing, I think we may have as we're actually going to have like five or six uh, baptisms combined with our confirmation. I don't know because they're all dynamics then with communion and how that's worked in, but it's been, as we bring people in, there used to be this very nice system. You know, everyone got their child baptized. You know, I mean, you grew up in the Lutheran church uh, or in a church that practiced infant baptism, then you went Mm -hmm. to First Communion to do that. We're finding that people don't fit that system so neatly anymore. And so we're having to be a little quick on our feet and figuring out how do we do those important milestones, those important sacraments in a rhythm that that is making sense in their lives. So, well, that's been such a big question recently, too, because in some congregations such as yours, it is an issue. Is order that important? You know, when I came through confirmation, I, even when I came through seminary, um, we talked about communion being a gift for the baptized. Yep. Well, now there's been some real question about that. I think we need to we have a good theological discussion about that. Um, do I dare ask what the practice is? At, at, what, if, what if... I'm going to guess that you don't refuse anybody that comes to the altar. That is correct. And you're not asking them at the door if they're baptized. Correct. So what is the communion invitation that you use at Light of Christ? The, um, it's evolved. You know, I've been there 20 years. Yeah. Things probably yeah. need to change over time. But, you know, I, I think early on I said, for those who believe and are baptized, you're welcome to share in Jesus' table. These days I more say things like, you know, we at Light of Christ, we recognize this is Jesus' table, not ours. If you recognize your need for His forgiveness, for His touch, for His leading in your life, you're welcome to come and connect with Jesus. So I probably use language more like that. Um, yeah, that's a little I, more that doesn't use baptism yeah. as as a prerequisite. You didn't have to get 101 to do 201. Yeah, because I remember when I started, which is a few years before you, a couple, just a few. Not, yeah, just, just a, a few. Um, <laughs> uh, the communion invitation was something, um, uh, you're welcome to commune if you be- uh, are baptized and believe that Jesus Christ is present as he promised to be. Um, so there, and there was sometimes... 
you know, we always had confession and forgiveness at the beginning of a service, so it was like a prelude to the whole thing. Um, I'm glad. I'm glad we're thinking about these things because that's it. Sometimes it can become an impediment. Our our rules uh, can become a real impediment to somebody coming to faith. I I think the the theology and the reason we had those rules made a lot of sense. They made a lot of sense in the structure and flow of how things had been working. We're just getting in a much more fragmented world, and people are coming from different directions and stepping into. Um, church, we're even finding that, you know, it used to be always that worship was the front door. We're now finding people are jumping into a small group or coming in through this and, and trying to figure out how that. So in that sense, there needs to be, and I think we are in that um, in-between, you know, what's the word, the liminal state where we're right. in, where things that we knew we're having to rethink because we're not exactly sure where we're headed and how things will be. So we're it's a time of experimentation um, without going totally off the rails or in craziness. But I think it is a time where we have to innovate and experiment and see. And I think over time, some of this will settle out and we will find new language and rhythms that will make sense. But I think that things happening in different congregations are okay. And, and I think the important part, as you said, for us to then have those conversations between leaders and pastors and bishops and saying, what are you doing? How is this working? Because I think in some ways the theology is being shaped by the changing cultural dynamics around us. Not that God's Word is changing, but we sometimes received it in forms that made sense for that time, but maybe we're having to learn to discover new vessels to carry the same truth, the same message going forward in a new era. That's exactly the conversation I'm going to have with uh, another guest. Well, I'll just sit in on that one, too, because <laughs> I want to hear and I, I probably want to have yeah. <laughs> But it's just, it is so interesting. Now, you just mentioned that it used to be people would come in the front door, and then we discovered the back pew was the front door because people didn't want to get too close. Now we've got a whole new way of entering the life of the church, and that's in digital format. Um, you know, you can worship with virtually any congregation you want to at this point. Um, what are you doing at Light of Christ? What are you doing to incorporate those people or, or kind of help them find a way into a congregation? You know, it's, we're wrestling with that exact question, like everyone else. I think there's going to be, you know, we find now that there's almost no one who walks in the door who hasn't watched us online before. Right. So you do your church shopping not by, I mean, it used to be in um our experience was, you know, five, ten years ago, we would tend during the summer to see um, uh, oftentimes uh, women coming to worship. They were often the scouts for their family, uh, uh, you know, uh, and sort of checking out. And so they're visiting a couple of churches because in a number of the situations we saw, the women were the ones who were spiritual leaders trying to find a home for their, mm-hmm. for their household. And um, now we're seeing more... If someone's showing up, it's the whole household showing up because they've already scouted us out online. And so, but then the question becomes, what about those folks who are scouting online but never walk in the door? And we're actually um, looking um, at investing next year in bringing on a new staff person who's going to specifically focus on how do we engage people online. And there's a huge learning curve for us. Others have done this for a longer period of time. But we're really, um, we've come to believe, or at least we think we're going to try, being one church in 
really one church in two locations, mm-hmm. in person and online. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for us, some of the people online are still folks who aren't comfortable being in right. um, in, uh, in the gathered uh, assembly. For others, they're too far away. Um, and so we're not sure um, of, you know, can we start forming community online from people who may never walk in the door? And what does that look like? So we're... In, you know, in the past, we've, when we formed false small groups, we've sometimes formed one that's just been a virtual online. But we, what we found is we were really doing some creative, investive, investing ourselves in that work in the first year of the pandemic. And then as we started opening up, our staff needed to focus to how do we do in person again. And so we've lost some of our focus and our effort on the online. And um, I just talked to a neighboring pastor who said, yeah, I'm so glad because we're, we don't want to encourage people to stay online. We're minimizing what we're doing there because we want people back in, in the gathered yeah. community. I think we're going we're gonna to try another tack that we're going to sort of double down with investing online and see if we can really be a both and, good Lutheran term, both yeah. and rather than either or. And uh, but I don't know. Talk to me in a year or two, and I'll have a better. Sense. Well, I'll be talking to you before that too, because <laughs> I find that very, very intriguing, and I think it's important. And um, w- there are few congregations in in the synod uh, as equipped to do that as Light of Christ. I'm I'm going to be listening and watching and paying attention. I think that's uh, that's just great. I'm really I'm happy to hear that. Yeah. So we'll we'll know more. Um, you know, year or two from now. Wow. I want to circle back to one yeah, of the please. other things you said when you said adults being baptized. Yeah. Because, um, y- you know, I am not that creative of a person. So I beg, borrow, and steal from wherever I can that I see good things going. One of my favorite lines I heard from someone is, all work and no plagiarism makes for a dull sermon. So <laughs> the, I'm welcome. You know, I, I, don't steal, I don't steal someone else's story and say it was mine. I, I don't good, do that. Good, no, don't do no, that. No, 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 that no, is plagiarism. Yes, and I don't do that. But... The um, years ago, um, one of my colleagues I started doing um, an outdoor immersion baptism experience for people who wanted to do that. Yeah. Well, I we wrestled with that for a while, but about I don't know seven, eight, nine years ago, we started doing that at Light of Christ. And so, in usually been August, um, we go to a local lake and we have done it at sort of two levels. One, we have allowed it to be a baptism experience for those who want to who have not been baptized before, who want to be um, have baptism by immersion. Mm-hmm. So we do that. The other thing, and here's where I wrestled with it for a while, we also allow it to be that place for people who are baptized as an infant, but then really came to a vibrant living faith later in life and wanted to signal that, signify that memorialize that, um, allow it to be an affirming of their baptism and um, by immersion. And so I know we have done sometimes, you know, I've been at a church where they've taken a branch and sprinkled a little bit. Well, we do a little more water than that. So we're out at the beach and I got to tell you, Bishop, those have been the times when I have looked in the eyes of folks. So these are people who were baptized as infants, but really... Their parents didn't help them to come to faith, or they wandered away, or that never really took whatever it was, and then later in life came to this experience of really realizing who Jesus was for them, and they're wanting to acknowledge that. And I have been out in the water with folks, and you know, 
tough, grizzled guys with tears down their cheeks because, it, and I'll never forget this one guy who um, worked for, what does he work for? Some company where he had lived in different parts of the world. And when he came to Light of Christ, he said, you know, Pastor, I have... Um, I've investigated different religions. I have, because I've lived in other parts of the world, I've taken a deep dive into experience, and I've come to believe that who Jesus is, Jesus is who he said he is. And, and I want to claim that in, in this affirming of my baptism. And what he said to me is, he goes, hold me under for a little while. Uh-huh. <laughs> he had that sense of that dying and rising with Christ. And so so we have done that, even though he had been baptized before, allowing that um, immersion experience as an affirming of that because it is something that he then... was well, just we need sometimes moments. We need those milestone moments, those markers. So we've done that. So again, idea I stole from someone else, but it's been powerful for us. Um, Kind of related to that, I had a parishioner once tell me that um, her baptism became real to her in one of those liturgies when she got sprinkled with water. Interesting. So uh, I can certainly understand how that would that would be it's the same thing. Yeah. Except for the amount of water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, interesting. Who are the new people who are coming to Light of Christ? Hmm. Where do they come from? Are they coming from faith backgrounds? It, you know, it's a mix. Um, we've had uh, a few families who have come. I mean, we're located... 20 minutes down the road from a couple of mega churches mm-hmm. that have just had some painful leadership transitions. Right. And there have been a few folks who have been wounded in those processes who are saying, I need a fresh start. And so we always encourage if someone comes to Light of Christ and I'm talking to them and they've been active in a church before, I always say, hey, is there a way to find healing in the place where you're at? I mean, because it isn't always healthy to just jump around from place to place. So I encourage that. But if they're saying, I need something new. So what we've tried to do is to say, then let this be a place of healing for you. Mm-hmm. First, so some, it's been sort of wounded in other church experiences. Yeah. Those are folks who have been active in church. But then some of it has been the classic other situations. You know, I, I tend to always think someone new coming in, it's just because they woke up one morning and they wanted to <laughs> connect with God in their life. But oftentimes it's because of some something's hit the fan, some some brokenness that their marriage is crumbling, or there there's an illness that just knocked someone in their family off base, and they're not sure what to do, or 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 their children are struggling, or and that is the other where families have come because they're saying, "I'm wanting something." You know, my child is asking me questions, and I don't have good answers. So, do you have any answers? <laughs> I, I mean, that some of it has been that. So. Um, as well as we just try to create other entry points for, you know, through children's ministry, our children's choir. Um, I was just talking to our um, children's choir director, and she said, uh, she goes, we just have a lot of sort of fringier families that have connected in to that experience. And so she, they just led a musical this past weekend at worship. And uh, she said they were adults who are sort of newer to Light of Christ. So they, I couldn't like just say, hey, go to the closet and go get that because they didn't know where anything was <laughs> right. um, or how to do things, she said. but And I just said to Becca, I just said, boy, what a great opportunity to help them to find a leadership role, to find a niche here so that they can 
um, so that we don't become a religious programming center. I drop my kids, I send my kids, yep. but that it can truly become community for them, where they can find a home, where they can take ownership. And sometimes the best way to do that is for them to find a niche of serving. Like, I'm needed here. Mm-hmm. That Sometimes that opens folks up, too. So, so it's it, it's a mishmash. It's not like oh, we're all seeing you know. It's you know sometimes you know we've also seen you know some are families with younger kids, some are fifty year old single couple. It, 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 it's been a mishmash. Yeah. So you know you use two words that uh, I think uh, we need to hold um, because at this stage of the pandemic, I think an awful lot of people are broken. <laughs> <laughs> um, and wounded, and I think that some of those wounds and the brokenness has been deeper, or it has been exacerbated, or it's more noticeable. We're much more fragile than we thought we were. Yep. Boy, and I think the church has a role to play in in healing. Yeah. You know, we just um, uh, we just called the new pastor at Light yeah. of Christ. Um, we're we now got. Uh, we now have an Episcopal priest who's a pastor at Light of Christ, and uh, Pastor Maureen O'Connor, Pastor Mo, um, it's been a blessing uh, for us. We're really grateful for that relationship. Um, what was interesting, as the new pastor in town, uh, new pastor in the church, what she discovered is everyone in the congregation who was hurting was going to her. And, you know, at some level, I got to say, I love this because they go, oh, Kendall's the senior pastor. He must be busy. So we'll go to Pastor Mo. Oh. I think she ended up being busier than I was at times <laughs> because of all those care things. But it, she reminded us of going like, we have to train up folks to do that. And so we, we had a ministry. We had created our own sort of home-based, a little bit um, simplified Stevens ministry mm-hmm. um, and had formed it. 17 years ago, called Caring Partners Ministries. We did it, and it had a great run for a while. And then, like a lot of programs at church, sort of died out. Some of it was because we formed more adult, we got gathered more adults in small groups, so they were caring for each other that way. But we, so we resurrected. We, but we, you know, you got to rebrand it. So it's now the I Care Ministry, little I Care, and we just trained 12 people to be I Care allies to try and match people because, as you said, they're hurting folks. And as pastors, how do we not just say, um, oh, I have to care, I have to care. How do we equip people to be caring? Um, And one of the things we did, this was years ago, 15 years ago, um, I was wrestling that when when I first came to Light of Christ because sort of it's a, it was a much bigger congregation that I had been a part of and trying to figure out how do we care and how do we think about it. And actually I had a couple of people really do a deep dive into what does pastoral care mean at Light of Christ? And we came up with sort of three, three values. And, and, and we, we said it was about pastoral care, but we stepped back and the first one was that we said Christian care is a community effort. So it's the congregation that cares for each other. Yep. Second one is care happens best in the closest connections. 
So the best care, I mean, this isn't rocket science. I mean, you know, so if you have a choir that really the choir sees itself not just as singers for the worship service, but they're a community that cares for each other, and they're the ones who best know each other. So we, we, we're really putting the care back, all of the one another statements in the New Testament. Love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, confess your sins to one another. So Christian care is a community effort. Um, care happens best in the closest connections. And the third one was, and I won't get my our wording exactly, but different care situations require differently equipped caregivers. And so what we really said is most 90% of the care at Light of Christ happens, the members of Light of Christ caring for one another. It's when you get to the higher levels, crisis care and those things, that's when staff or one of the pastors are stepping into that. And it really allowed, you know, we, we often use that you know, phrase, you know, pastor so-and-so, the ministers of the church, the whole body, right. really we're trying to live into that. And sort of this is those differently equipped caregivers, even one more layer of it, not just everyone, but some that have been specially trained. And then for those most crisis situations, those are the places where Pastor Mo and I or other staff at Light of Christ are stepping in to really allow people to live into the giftedness that God's... With a little equipping, God has prepared people to do that. Um, but we often, I find our members often feel like, I want to, but I don't want to say the wrong thing, or I don't want to do it wrong. And sometimes that equipping, either in a program, we've even done it in, um, in a sermon series. Uh, around. I did one years ago around grieving. Mm-hmm. And because I think people often are like, I don't want to say the wrong thing, so I don't say anything. Rather than, so we just did a three-part sermon series to try and equip the congregation. How do you respond to folks who are grieving? And, um, and, and I guess that ties in with some of this baptismal stuff, is how, do we, how are we equipping the people of our churches to live into their baptismal vocation? How do they live into the giftedness that God has already poured into them, and they just need a little bit of equipping, a little bit of guidance, so they can, with confidence, live into that? Do you ever use the word vocation? Yeah, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a word that really doesn't make a lot of sense to a lot of people. You'd no. have to do a lot of background work. But you, you are creating um, disciples out of, of this, and um, it, it's a part of our vocation, our calling uh, as Christians, as the baptized, to go out and... Uh, uh, be of service to our neighbor and our world. And it sounds like what you've done there at Light of Christ has created these smaller communities, either small groups or, or as you were saying, the choir or Sunday school or, or uh, confirmation class, whatever, um, to, to create these, these smaller communities of care going and doing what they're doing in the name of Christ. Um, so it doesn't seem like if... So Mrs. So-and-so comes over to my house and makes a call. It's just her, but she's there representing the church. It, and, and that is, it is, I think that is a key difference because a lot of this care is happening. Yeah. But sometimes we haven't named it that way. And, and so it's like four people from the church have visited, you know, John Adams, who's in the, in the hospital, but he said, boy, my church wasn't there for me. Your church was there for you. Right. And, and, so. so how do you, <laughs> how do you combat that? Because that, that's been a frustration of mine in yeah. parish ministry, getting people to understand that aspect to it. You know, I think it is, 
you know, if you just lead a class on it, you're not going to get that breakthrough. I think you have to do it in the preaching where you're constantly reminding people um, that all of us have a calling. I mean, you've got to keep talking about gifts and how are you gifted? How has God called you? How has God equipped you? And keep using that language and telling stories of that and giving examples of it. And so that people can, when they're out of the heart that Jesus has shaped, go to their neighbor to care for them, that they're not thinking, well, I'm just trying to do a nice thing, that I'm doing it out of my faith. And so I think it's both for the individual to claim that as well as for the um you know, reminding the congregation. You know, we all, you know, so occasionally we'll do a series where we'll remind people, hey, these are our core care values. Because, you know, vision leaks, uh, as someone has said. And so you just have to keep saying these core things again and again and again and again. I think one of the other ways, though, um, and, and I think this is a, I've really seen as sort of a line in the sand for a lot of people is some of the reason that those visits from other, from other members of the church don't feel like the church coming. Because those are people who sometimes don't feel equipped to pray out loud with the person they're visiting. And I have come to see that that is a profound line that how are we equipping our people to be comfortable praying out loud with someone else? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and the truth is, Bishop, even as pastor, I can fall into the trap. I did it yesterday. I, I, I called someone and um, was checking in. They had had surgery eight weeks ago. How are they doing? And, um, and they're doing fine, but a little bit of a uh, setback. It's not going as quickly. And I said as I was saying, well, I'll keep you in prayer. And I said, and I went, crud, you dingling Kendall. Why didn't you just go to prayer right yeah, there right, in that moment? Right. And so... I need to remind myself of that, um, but we have, a, you know, part of what the discipleship journey at Light of Christ over the last 20 years, working with adults, and I, I think it is one of the things that I'm most grateful for uh, that has happened is, before I got to Light of Christ, they had called someone to be sort of a director of adult ministry, and this person had a real heart for how do we disciple adults? And so in forming small groups, she really was trained people how to pray with one another. And some people are familiar with a Kingdom Weekend ministry or Curcio. You know, we've had one that was Kingdom Weekend for many years, and then we rebranded it as E3. But it's a spiritual renewal retreat for adults. And it has often been on that retreat that people have been invited to pray out loud with someone for the first time. And that that is a crossing of a line. When you do that, you are claiming your faith and you're living into it in a way that you really can become that minister that we love to say all of our members are. But at some level, if you can't pray out loud with someone, there's a block. There's a roadblock. So how do we get people over that hump? Because that, you know, if if your friend from the choir shows up at the hospital for you, and they actually say, can, I, can we pray here? That'll feel like the church was there for me. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Uh, thinking back again to my first call, there was a, a member of that congregation um, who just prayed so much more eloquently than I. 
probably still does. <laughs> you know, the eloquence is not one of my gifts. But um, I was intimidated by that. New pastor, person not much older than me, and could pray so beautifully. And it was from the heart, and I just, it, it, it made me feel good to listen to him, and it made me feel so inadequate. And I had to, I really had to work to get over that. But I think that uh, happens to a lot of lay people, too. They just get intimidated by somebody else who can do it better than they can. One of the things, and here again, as I said, I don't have any creative ideas. I'm just <laughs> borrowing from others. But the pastor who had served at Lighter Christ before I came there had a practice of doing something that I live into about 70% of the time, but I think it's a great practice. When someone says, hey, pastor, can I meet with you? Yeah, something going on in my life. Come into the office, they talk with them. The end, this pastor said, you know, let's pray about this. And the person said, yeah, let's pray about it. And the pastor always said, you start and I'll finish. Mm. And of course, mm. the reaction always goes, oh, I, I, I can't do that. I, wow. I don't pray. No, yeah. no, just, just say what's on your heart to God. And so this pastor was training people to say, it's okay. And then the key piece is, is if as pastors we're doing that and really inviting them to say whatever, and, and the truth is their prayers will be more eloquent because they are more authentically pained by the dynamic mm-hmm. they are experiencing. The, they will say, then the key for us is to keep our prayers really short and to not try and wax eloquently after that. Yeah. But it was a great modeling, and sometimes I still still step in, slip into being, you know, Kendall the chaplain, oh, you've come to talk to me, let me pray for you now. You know, and yeah. when what I should be doing is helping this person in their relationship with God, rather than stepping in as the uh, religious expert who prays for them, but equipping them. And... and, and Two-thirds, three-quarters of the time I remember to do that, and then the other time. But you also talked about how important it is to pray with other people. Because when when I was in seminary quite a few years ago, I remember pastoral care class where the professor actually said to us, and remember, you don't need to pray every at every visit. Well, that was wrong. Yeah. That, or I've come to believe that that was really bad advice. I, I, I think you're right. And, and I don't know if I remember hearing that exact phrase, but I kind of felt that, like... It felt like it could start to be kind of chintzy, you know. I'm like at the end of it. Well, now it's time to pray, yeah, you know. And right, so, right, and a convenient but, way to get out of the situation. Exactly. <laughs> well, and I probably use that too. Um, <laughs> the, uh, in all honesty, but it, the but I think you're absolutely right. People long for us to invite them into that holy encounter, that moment, that that tender, sensitive opening that. You know, and not that God hasn't been listening to all the conversation that we've been having to whatever point. Yeah. But when we stop and we actually direct our conversation not to each other but yeah. to God, there is something profound in that moment. And it's not just pastors. No. You're talking about that should happen whenever two members of the church are together, and that. But so that's that's like daily discipleship. That's I and I think that's what you're trying to teach, right? Absolutely. I, I mean, in the end, you know, and I heard this again from another pastor, but, you know, that he put on the top of his door um, equipment manager. You know, that, that the, and the challenge is, is it feeds us as pastors a little bit of our pastoral ego for our, us to see ourselves as the expert, yeah, as the, you know, the one who can do these things. 
But if we really looked at what our role is, our role is to equip people in their own relationship with Christ and to help to make that as vibrant as it can be. And as I said with the... uh, you know, and in many ways, the Apostle Paul's a brilliant example of this. I'm just leading our my Wednesday morning Bible study. For 20 years, I've had the privilege to lead a group of people. The people have evolved, but in in a Wednesday morning Bible study, and as I know a lot of other pastors do, but we're in the book of Acts right now. And I just am describing Paul, and I just said he was like this guy who would like, you know, in the old world, I don't know if anyone still, but you know, they put a pole and they get a plate spinning and then they go get another pole and you know, you try to keep as many, you know, and, and that's what Paul would do. You know, he'd found, you know, share the good news, stay, teach for a couple months and then like, okay, you guys got this, keep working, I'm going to go start another plate spinning. Right. You know, and then when this one started wobbling, you know, oh, you darn Corinthians, you messed up here, you messed up here, do this, <laughs> get that spinning again. You, you know, that we sometimes see ourselves as the ones who have to take one plate and keep it spinning all the time, rather than how are we equipping people, you know, that we're disciple makers, that who can help others to make disciples. Yeah. I, I mean, in some ways, the most effective churches that I see out there are ones that talk about, we are churches that make disciples who make disciples. So that it's passed on. It's not even that we as the leadership of church have to make the We're teaching people how to be disciple makers. And for us, it, within the Lutheran Church, that isn't the way we were trained. We were much more chain, trained to be the theologian in residence in our right. church or the chaplain for our community of faith. Yep. And I just think it takes a different vision of being a pastor. Yeah, we've paid a price for it now. We can see the weakness in it very clearly. Yeah. You know, going back to prayer, I want to note that uh, you offered to pray with me before we began, which I deeply appreciated. And I... I uh, I pray for you and Connie all the time. Thanks. When uh, my wife was ill once, um, there were a lot of people who said, oh, we're praying for you, we're praying for you. It made a world of difference when I got an email that included the prayer. I love it. It wasn't just, we're praying for you, it was the prayer. And I've encouraged people to do that too. And I don't even follow my own advice on I that know. all the time. but. Uh, I do, and your family is uh, is in my prayers. Thanks. So thank you so much for this time. Really done the same with texts. Yeah. The oh, and see, we can use that technology in very beneficial ways. Sure can. So sure thanks can. for your time. I so deeply appreciate your uh, your uh, passion and uh, your willingness to sit down with me today. Yeah. It's been a blessing. Thanks, Bishop. Thanks for joining us. God bless you all.